Exodus 25, verse 1, we begin, we launch right out. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me from every man whose heart moves him, who you, you shall raise my contribution. This is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I am going to show you the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. Now, if you remember, when we opened up book, the book of Exodus quite a while ago, that book the Jews call Shemot, names, I gave you a four-part outline. We are now at part four of the outline. Part one, Exodus chapters one through four, the deliverer. Part two, Exodus five through 18, deliverance. Part three, Exodus chapter 19 through chapter 24, we looked at delivery as the people were delivered, brought to the mountain, the delivery of Torah in those chapters specifically. And then part four, where we are tonight, chapter 25 through the end of the book, chapter 40, what I'm calling delivery part two. Because now not only has Torah been delivered, but the tabernacle is being delivered to the people in terms of the blueprints. From here to the end of the book, the focus is on that, the blueprints and the construction of the tabernacle with some human failure and some divine glory along the way. We'll see that as well. But these divine blueprints that we're gonna get into tonight, these amazing uh, drafts, if you will, are more than just the interest of architects and planners and engineers and designers. Oh, they would find this fascinating. And they would be able to look into and perhaps even reconstruct some of the nuances that are taught here. But for the average person like myself, these are shadowy details of a heavenly reality, which makes going into these a remarkable experience because what we are beginning to see here are these details given, very specific, very precise, by God to Moses for this tabernacle, which is a representation of nothing less than the throne room in heaven. Does it look exactly like the tabernacle? I don't know, but, but the Lord designed this. This is not the design of man. This is the design of God. The Hebrew pastor said in Hebrews chapter eight, verse five, that the priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain, Exodus 25, verse nine. So know that right out the gate that the tabernacle was designed, was built according to heavenly design, that this was God's blueprint. These are God's instructions. But with that, this divine throne room design is remarkably picturesque, graphic in its detail. Mottier writes, the tabernacle could make a strong bid to be the greatest single biblical visual aid. 
There cannot be a single detail of the tabernacle devoid of meaning. That is every bit of fabric, every furnishing, every board, every socket, every curtain, all of it has meaning for us. And understanding it, if we're willing to delve into these things and study it out. However, a warning before we go further. It was William Tyndale who said, a truth derived solely from type and unaffirmed by plain teaching is as much use as a tale of Robin Hood. (laughs) And he's right. It's so easy to go way off into allegory and symbolism so far that we leave the plain truth of Scripture. So how do we avoid doing that? Well, we allow Scripture to tell us what is allegorical. We allow Scripture to point out the symbolism and to reveal to us the metaphor. We look at the plain Scripture and the rest of Scripture as commentary on these blueprints of the tabernacle to have the rich meaning come out, and God takes care of that. But we need to approach all of this thoughtfully, allowing the plain text of the Scripture to take us forward into and through the tabernacle. I'm gonna begin with, with three significant biblical words for the tabernacle, the first two of which are right here in verse eight, where the Lord says, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. A sanctuary in which I may dwell. The word sanctuary there is mikdash. A mikdash is a holy place. That's all it means. Let them construct a holy place place. But he says, a place where I may dwell, and that's from the word shakan. Here it's shakan T, but shakan produces the noun that we see later, mishkan. And mishkan means a dwelling place or a habitation. So the Lord says, let them construct a sanctuary that I may dwell. He's saying that the tabernacle was to be a holy habitation. So not simply like a a temple, like one of the pagan temples, you know, that was to a God. No, this was a, a holy place for God to dwell, for his spirit to be present, for his glory to be present, for God to meet there with his people, a holy habitation. That's awesome. That's the first description of the tabernacle, but it's really interesting to me that this holy habitation It's called something else that seems almost incompatible with the idea. We see that in the next chapter. If you look at chapter 26, verse seven, he says, you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent. Over the tabernacle, you shall make 11 curtains in all. A tent. Wait a minute. It's to be a holy place, a a habitation where God may dwell among his people. Wow, awesome, spiritual, divine, glorious, and it's to be a tent. The word in the Hebrew is that plain and that common. It's ochel. And ochel, you know what an ochel is? A tent? It's a shelter for a nomad. It's what the Bedouins live in, even to this day. As one scholar wrote, this is the tent God used when God went camping. It's so common and so basic, and it just doesn't seem to go with holy habitation, tent. Remarkable. God called for this. Eventually, it's gonna be called the tent of meeting, the ochel moed, 
in Exodus 27, verse 21. This is amazing to me because before Moses or anyone else came and met with God, God called to them. God met them right where they were. It's what he does. The creator of all the universe was content to have a tent for his residence, just like his people. And that's something to understand going in, that he identified personally with his people and with their circumstances. You know, he doesn't have a palace that they carry through the wilderness. He doesn't have some marvelous big temple built that they have got have to haul through the desert while they're living in tents. God, no, he comes down among them and lives with them in the same way that they do. Again, it is what he does. If you look over in Hebrews chapter two, and some of these Additional verses, I'm gonna move quickly through because if you've noticed, if you look down there on YouTube, there are a lot of them tonight. Hebrews chapter two, verse 17 says, therefore he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are themselves tempted. Over in chapter four, verse 15, says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus comes right among us. And that's what we see God doing with this tent which is a holy habitation, but it's still a tent like the tents of Israel and there among his people he would dwell. So the tabernacle was not only built to heavenly specifications from curtains and sockets to courtyards and furnishings, but this holy dwelling and yet this tent, it's truly a gallery of portraits of our Lord Jesus Christ, of Israel's Messiah. That as he's building this dwelling for himself, God also has in mind pictures and portraits throughout that would reveal his intention with the Messiah. One more thing before we roll on with these blueprints. I want you to notice the source of the tabernacle's textiles and materials and supplies. Look back in verse two, tell the sons of Israel, the Lord says, to raise a contribution for me from every man who, whose heart moves him. You shall raise my contribution. And he lists out the gold and the silver and the bronze and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat hair and all the other elements that are gonna be needed and gathered from the people for this tabernacle. But I love what he says, from every man whose heart moves him. You know, we've said before, give as the Lord leads. Give as you feel that in your heart. Let your giving, let your offerings, let your tithes be of the heart to the Lord and then it's joyful and then it does something to you. If you're giving out of obligation, not so much. But few things move the heart to godliness like generosity, like truly joyful giving. Now, remember, when the Lord asked for these things, he's asking, he's involving the entirety of Israel, the sons of Israel, saying, I want you all to contribute to this. 
I want you all to have a part in this. And you may remember when the sons of Israel, when they left out of Egypt, they plundered Egypt. So they had these materials. Exodus 12, 36, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have the request. They plundered the Egyptians. All of these things listed here, all of the fabrics and the, the oils and the spices and the, the onyx stones and setting stones and the gold, silver, and bronze, all of these things they received as they left Egypt. And now they have opportunity to turn around and be a part of what God's doing. The question was not, where do they get the raw materials? The question here is, would they have the raw generosity? Would they give of what they had received? Where are you with that? See, we're gonna see with the children of Israel how they respond to this request at a heart level, how their hearts respond. And our creator knows what makes the heart tick, what, what alters us and changes us and makes us more like him. And generosity is right at the top of the list. The apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, verse seven, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance, Paul says, for every good deed. As the more you give, the more God's gonna give to you so you have more to give. And that just blesses the heart. It encourages the follower. It's always amazing to try to outgive God and discover that you can't, that the more you give to the Lord, the more he supplies every need overwhelmingly with all liberality, Paul says, so that then you can be liberal in your giving, if not your politics. <laughs> Generous giving. It's not about what you can do for God. It's about what generous giving does to you and it affects the giver's heart. God loves a cheerful giver. You Bible students know the word cheerful is hilaron in the Greek. A hilarious giver, a joyful giver because there's a joyful willingness in just giving from what the Lord has already given to you. And the tabernacle would be built by this very thing, by joyful hearts. And it's interesting because now Yahweh is going to begin the blueprints in the very heart of the tabernacle. Verse 10, they shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding or crown around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings shall be on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give to you. An ark, first furnishing of the tabernacle, and we're right in the heart of the tabernacle, right there in the Holy of Holies. Before it's even constructed, God begins with the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony. An ark, the word is aron in Hebrew, and it just means a box, a chest, a small chest or box, this one 
if you do the math with the cubits, and I'll tell you how to do that in a second here, this one would be three and three quarters feet in length, two and a quarter in width and in height. It's a small box. It's not some big, huge, gaping thing. We know the specifications for it because while well, he uses the word cubit, cubit in Hebrew is amatayim, or cubits. That's the plural form of amata, of, of cubit. Well, what's a, a cubit? A cubit was measured by the forearm. In fact, amatim means forearms, cubits. And it measured from the elbow all the way up to the tip of the middle finger. That would be a cubit of an average size person. So you might say, well, that's not exact. Well, it was exact for measuring at that time, and that's what a carpenter would use. I need it to be three cubits. It would be three forearms length. And so a cubit, we can measure at about 18 inches. So anytime you see cubits in the scriptures, just add it up by inches, three and a half cubits would be, or, or in this case, he says two and a half cubits would be three feet and three-quarter inches. So this little box was acacia wood. Acacia wood, a very common desert wood, but overlaid with pure gold. I was reading earlier today that actually some think there may have been gold within the gold, that it may have been layered. Some of the coffins in Egypt were layered in that way, that you'd have like a wood box that would be overlaid in gold, and then you'd have a gold box that would slide down within, and another gold box that would slide down within that. And some guess maybe that was part of what was going on here. The scripture doesn't say that. It just says take the box and overlay it inside and out. So once the ark was completed, you wouldn't see any wood anywhere. It would look like a solid gold box, but it would have that wood for its construction. Acacia wood, overlaid with pure gold. But remember, boxes are made to hold things. So again, in verse 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. And testimony is just another word here for the law. It's actually gonna end up being more of a testimony than simply the law itself, though that is the, the two stone tablets that would go in there. But what we discover later on, Hebrews chapter nine, verse four, the Ark of the Covenant contained a golden jar holding manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the table's of the covenant. So all three of those things would actually be placed in and kept in the Ark of the Covenant. All three unique testimonies in their own right. But the law was the thing. The law was at issue. By the way, this same word for Ark, Aaron, that is used here and used throughout, every time you see the word the Ark of the Covenant, it's not the same word that's used for the Ark of Noah, different word. Aaron for the Ark of the Covenant is used another way, however, in Genesis chapter 50, verse 26, it is used for the coffin box of Joseph. It's a coffin. The Ark is a coffin? Why, why would a box for the dead, a word meaning a box for the dead, be the same word that's used now of the Ark of the Covenant, this, this holy golden box? <laughs> Hey, it is a box for the dead for anyone who tries to approach God by law. It'll kill you. Romans chapter seven, verse five, while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The law could only bring death, not because the law wasn't perfect, but because we aren't. So we couldn't keep it for all our effort, for all our trying. It's just death. 
1 Corinthians 15, 56 said the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. How so? Because the law illuminates it, makes it real to us so that we can see what our sin is. Oh, but thanks be to God, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've got this box, this coffin box, if you will, that's gonna contain the testimony, but, but a box that would contain a testimony that would testify to your death and to mine because we couldn't keep that testimony. And yet, look what he does next. Look what he did with the lid, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give you. So the ark itself described in the first few verses 10 through 16 there is just a box without a lid. Now he gives what we call the mercy seat. And by the way, the mercy seat is the only chair in the tabernacle, if you can call it that. The only place where anyone could sit, and no one could sit there but the presence of God. Well, we call it a mercy seat. That's not actually what the word is there. The word in Hebrew is kaporet. And the kaporet, literally translated, it's two words put together, uh, kapor or kippur, does that sound familiar? As in Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Kippur is atonement. And the et that's added to this means cover. This is the atonement cover. That's the actual description atop this box. Think about it. This box that contains the deadly law, deadly by its perfection, and on top of this sits the atonement cover where the covering blood of atonement is gonna be sprinkled every year on Yom Kippur on the Kaporet. Because the Ark of the Covenant is the meeting place of life and death. Listen to what Paul says. We've read this recently, but listen. Romans chapter eight, verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus did that, but before Jesus came, the law came, and the law spoke death, and into that coffin box went the law. That, that picture of death. Now, the Jewish people didn't see it that way, not at first. This was God's law to them and this law would keep them and they would keep it, but they didn't. But at first they thought, yeah, we can do this. We always think that. We always think, I, I can do this. I, I can make this happen. I, I got this, Lord, until we discover that we can't. And so what do we need atop this box containing a law that could only pronounce our death? We needed mercy. We needed covering. We needed atonement. 
And the atonement would then cover over that requirement of law, covering it for a time, covering it for then, until Messiah would come, the atonement cover. Verse 22, the Lord says, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. The mercy seat, the atonement cover, and I'm gonna meet you there, the Lord says. So they always know where to find him. So they can always come to him. I'll meet you there. There's only one problem with this promised meeting. Only two, two people could do it. The high priest, at first it would be Aaron, and the high priest could only once a year on Yom Kippur. So the meeting's limited to a one-time-a-year meeting for the high priest, and he would go in there. We'll read about this later, perhaps next week. But he would go in there with sheer terror. They put a rope around his ankle just in case he died by doing something wrong and would have to be pulled out. And he could only go once a year, so suddenly this tent of meeting is really an annual event, right? Except for Moses. Moses could go before God any time he wanted. Moses, the Bible will tell us, used to speak to God as a friend face to face. Moses could go in and, and, and have fellowship with and talk to and come before the Lord. Unlimited access. Can you even imagine <laughs> having that kind of access to holy God? I mean, wow. You know what? You have it. You have the access to the Father anytime you want, not just annually, not just as you bring some kind of a sacrifice to cover uh, with animal blood that couldn't cover you. You have it. The ark and the caporet, the atonement cover, my friends, they portray Jesus Christ in stunning detail. And this is God's intention. Think about this with me. With me. It's made of acacia wood. Acacia wood, that common desert wood that indicates or speaks of his humanity. Where do you get that? Acacia trees go, grow right up out of the desert floor. Very common desert trees. Isaiah 53 verse two says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. That's how the acacia grew. And if you take an acacia branch and cut into it and striate it, it will release a sticky resin that the Israelites and ancient peoples used as medicine. Isaiah 53, verse five, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, by his stripes, we are healed. Like the acacia. The acacia tree also is, get this, a source of thorns. It has very thorny branches. Matthew 27, 29, after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And it's entirely likely that the crown of thorns on the brow of Christ was acacia. The acacia is also an extremely durable but lightweight hardwood. 
It's a hardwood tree. Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Acacia wood and surrounded, overlaid by pure gold, this would last. This is a lasting thing, just as Christ is lasting and did not undergo decay in the grave, but resurrected. The acacia wood, but, but again, overlaid with pure gold inside and out. And pure gold biblically pictures deity. Acacia wood, common like humanity, made of the stuff of earth, like, like we are made of the stuff of earth, and yet the gold overlay would be a picture of deity, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, acacia wood and gold. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, Revelation chapter one, verse eight. But you know what? That's Jesus talking. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, golden crowns, many of them speaking of his absolute Authority and unlimited rule. Christ our God, Christ our King, our Savior and our God. And remember, I mentioned this on Sunday, that fully one-third, well, not quite one-third, 30% of evangelical Christians don't believe Jesus is God. I'm saying this again because, folks, you've got to know who he is. He is Christ our God. He is fully God and became fully man at the same time like wood and gold, acacia and pure gold overlay, humanity and deity. As John 1.14 says, and we've read this so many times, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is skenuo, which means to fix his tabernacle, to pitch his tent. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Because again, the tabernacle itself is a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, I said on Sunday, and, and I just, I, I wanna address this. I, I said Sunday something that, well, it offended some. And I never intend to offend or hurt anyone's feelings. I was talking about what we're willing to do for God. And, and I answered the question that I've been asked, would Jesus wear a mask or a face covering? And I answered that, do you remember? Well, Jesus put on flesh. And there were some who were offended by that because of medical reasons or other reasons that can't wear a face covering and, and they felt like I was taking a personal dig and I wasn't, I truly wasn't. It's not about you and me here and face coverings. The point was, and listen to this, we have no idea what it was like for eternal glorified God to put on human flesh. We don't know how hard that was for him to literally set aside glory, to empty himself of that glorious power even. Philippians chapter two, verse six, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. The point is we do not know what he did, how far he went, how hard that was for God to become man. 
for the creator to become like his own creation. Humanity and deity. By the way, think about this, that when Jesus became human, God and man, gold and wood, all at the same time, he would never again only be God. He would for then on and forevermore be fully God, fully man. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. The ark, by the way, this this wood box, speaking of humanity, covered over in gold, speaking of deity, it also contained the law. The, The 10 commandments of the Decalogue, the tablets of the law, contained within, just as Jesus did. Jesus contained the law. Psalm 40, verse seven, behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is written within my heart. Jesus kept the law in himself, just like the Ark of the Covenant held the law. And it was Jesus who said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, keeping it perfectly in and of himself. The law in the Ark, like the law kept in the Christ. Well, you might say, but But what about those other things in the box too? I mean, there was the jar of manna, right? We just read about that. That's right, the manna, bread of heaven. Jesus is the bread of heaven. What about Aaron's rod that budded? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection, a dead stick that comes to life, budding, a picture of resurrection, picture of Jesus Christ himself. And by the way, Speaking of the resurrection, Bible students, what did Mary Magdalene see when she knelt down and looked into the empty tomb? Do you remember? John chapter 20, verse 12 tells us she saw two angels sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. You know what she saw? She saw the caporet, the mercy seat, the atoning cover, the two angels, why would God put two cherubim on top of this atoning cover on top of the Ark of the Covenant? What's that all about? Well, Moses didn't know. It's gotta be something holy, he must have thought. And granted, truly, as we'll see further on here, anytime you talk about the throne room in heaven, you're gonna see cherubim. They're part of the deal. Angels everywhere. But then Mary looks in, and John is the only one, the only gospel to point this out, that she saw the two angels sitting at the head and the feet, and it's the top of the ark. It's the caporet, which is mind-boggling. Talk about assigned seating. (laughs) The mercy seat vividly portrayed this scene 150 years before it happened. And this scene draws a reminder to the mercy seat. There in the empty tomb of Jesus, where atonement had fully taken place. Verse 23. Let's continue on. So we have the Ark of the Covenant. We have the caporet, the atonement cover on top of it. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. So it'd be three feet long, it'd be 18 inches wide, and it would be two feet three inches high if you're translating cubits into inches. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Make a gold border around it, and you shall make it for a rim of a hand breadth around it. You shall make a gold border for the rim around it. 
You shall make four gold rings for it and put the rings in the four corners which are on its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall again make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold so that they with them the table may be carried. And you shall make its dishes and its pans and its jars and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. By the way, before I go further, with that right there, what did the dishes look like? What are the specifications for the pans and the jars and the bowls and all these things? God's gonna give that by his spirit to a couple of craftsmen who will meet further along. So they'll get the specifications for the design, but right now we're just told these things are gonna be made as well. And in verse 30, he says, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. The bread of the presence is also the bread of the face. Here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> the bread would be set, they'd have 12 loaves of bread that they would set out on this table every day, this gold overlaid table, 12 fresh loaves of the bread of the face, the bread of the presence, also called the showbread. But it's different. Note this, it's different than manna in the jar. You might even say, well, they have manna in the jar, right? The bread from heaven, so what do they need the showbread for? What's that about? Manna, manna pointed to Jesus as the bread of life, which is what he described himself as in John chapter six, the life giver. That is, anyone who eats of this bread would receive eternal life, salvation, the life-giving bread. John 6, 51, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the bread of salvation. This is life-giving bread. That's the manna. The showbread's different. The showbread portrayed Jesus Christ, not as the life giver, but as the life sustainer, the nourishment of life. Well, how so? The showbread was ongoing bread for the priest. This was part of their daily sustenance. You know, if you get up every morning and you make some toast for yourself, well, there you go. This is their bread for daily consumption. And Matthew chapter four, verse four, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus is the word. And we live on him, we are sustained by him. Jesus is the sustaining bread, the sustaining word. So the bread of the presence is a picture of that which nourishes the manna, a picture of the bread that saves and gives life in the first place, but then the bread of the presence is that daily, ongoing, fresh bread that keeps us moving, keeps us going, feeds and nourishes the priesthood. And that's you in Jesus, a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 9. Revelation 1, 6, he's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. We are a royal priesthood. Actually, right now, we're priests in training. We'll talk more about that next week. But make the table of showbread. So now we have the Ark of the Covenant in the very center, and now the table of showbread Acacia wood, gold, gold overlaid and described for us there. And we move on, verse 31. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. This is the only furnishing in all the tabernacle 
that has no wood or anything else in it. This is pure gold, the lampstand. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its side. Three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms on one branch along with a bulb and a flower. And three cups shaped like almond blossoms on the other branch, a bulb and a flower. For six branches going out from the lampstand. So how many branches would there be? Seven, because you have three coming out one side, three coming out the other side, and you have the central shaft. So you're gonna have seven lamps on that menorah is the word in the Hebrew. He goes on and says that the three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in one branch and a bulb and a flower. I think I already read that. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms and bulbs in its flower. So he's describing this thing. Verse 35, a bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb out of the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. And their bulbs and their branches shall be one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. And then you shall make its lamps, note this, here it is, seven in number because you have three lamps of the three branches on one side, three lamps of three branches on the other side and one lamp in the central shaft for seven total lamps on the menorah. And they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. Remember that. Its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See to it that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown you on the mountain. This is all specific design. You've got to follow the pattern. The menorah, the, the golden lampstand. In the Talmud, it says, quote, the light of the menorah is testimony that the divine presence resides in the midst of Israel. It's so important to the Jewish people that even today, do you know what the emblem is of the state of Israel? Most people would say the Star of David, right? It's what's on their flag. No, the official emblem of the state of Israel is the menorah, the seven-candled lampstand that was in the temple and in the tabernacle. But again, the golden menorah, it represents Jesus. It is yet another picture. So we have already have the ark and the caporet, the atonement covering, the mercy seat, portraying Jesus there in the tabernacle, at the very heart of the tabernacle. But with the lampstand, we see Jesus again. What did he say? John chapter eight, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. But even more than representing Jesus, and you might, might be wondering, how can you do more than represent Jesus? The menorah was made of a talent of pure gold. As I said, no wood, nothing else in it. It's just pure gold. It's the only piece of furniture that's made this way. Pure gold, hammered work, made from a talent, a talent we estimate was somewhere between 60 to 70 pounds of pure gold. And it indicates pure deity. That is the Holy Spirit of Jesus. 
the lampstand, and throughout scripture and throughout Bible study from here on out, understand this, when you hear the lampstand referred to in scripture, it references and it portrays and it draws our mind to the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, verse two is a beautiful example of this. Without ever mentioning the lampstand, we see the lampstand in this description. Isaiah the prophet says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Speaking of Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's a picture of the lampstand, seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Again, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. What about number seven? The central shaft is the spirit. So the lampstand portrays for us the Holy Spirit. We see in Revelation chapter four, verse five. Are you with me? Stay with me in this that out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Remember, the tabernacle blueprints are a portrait of the throne room in heaven. And so Revelation 4, 5 continues, and seven lamps of fire are burning before the throne. Hey, that, that's the lampstand in the tabernacle, right? Revelation 4, 5 concludes that these seven lamps of fire are the seven spirits of God. Seven spirits? There's seven of them? The seven spirit, the complete spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is what's described by John there. And in the Jewish mindset, they would go right back. If they're thinking, Isaiah 11, 2, and the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which is the spirit of God and would be in Christ and on Christ because he is his spirit. So what I'm saying here is that the golden lampstand, that pure gold menorah stood as a type in the tabernacle of the very spirit of Christ. And Jesus said something about this that I find breathtaking. Revelation chapter one, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wait a minute, mind blown. The lampstand is the Holy Spirit. But here, Jesus says, the lampstand is the church. Well, Lord, which one is it? The Holy Spirit so intimately indwells and unifies believers that Jesus conformed the two. That Jesus says, as goes the Spirit, so goes the church. As is the church, so is the Spirit in unity and in oneness. In the lampstand, which portrays the Spirit in the tabernacle, but yet Jesus said seven lampstands portraying the church in its entirety in the world. Why? Because the Spirit is in the church and with the church and united to the church in a profound way. And understand this with me. When you give your life to Jesus, we talked about last week, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, but there's something more when the church assembles. There's something of, of the Spirit uniting together one believer with another believer with all of us filled with the Spirit ourselves individually, and yet we become united like a lampstand. by the power of the Spirit of God within us and among us and upon us which is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, 
with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So why doesn't the church get along? Why are there arguments and divisions and backbiting and slander? Why does that happen in the church if, if the church is the lampstand and the Holy Spirit's the lampstand and we're all supposed to be one thing? Why does this happen? Because the flesh is hostile to the Spirit. And we still got flesh to deal with, don't we? The flesh is at war with the Spirit of God. So where the Spirit is, you can imagine there's gonna be contention from time to time, not because of the Spirit, in us or among us, but because of the flesh that's on us. And so contentions do happen. And striving, which is why Paul says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make that your calling. Brothers and sisters, church, that's what we're to be, unified by the Spirit as one golden, pure, shining lampstand. And there is a dire warning that Jesus gives regarding the lampstand and the church. He says in Revelation chapter two, verse four, I have this against you, and he's talking to Ephesus, that you have left your first love. So love's at the core of all of this. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Ever been to that church where the lampstand has been removed? Now, now, please understand me. He doesn't say he's gonna rip the spirit out of the individual. You know, when he gives the gift of his spirit to a believer on that first day of faith, Acts 2.38, repent me, baptize every one of you, and we'll, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God does not give a gift and rip it away. So while individual believers within a church body may yet have the Spirit indwelling them, what can happen if a church backbites and fights and forgets their first love, Jesus, and forgets to love each other? A church body in loveless strife will lose the unifying peace and presence of the Holy Spirit, which is greater than simply the spirit in the individual believer. It is the spirit uniting us. And if you don't want to be unified, God will remove that lampstand from among you. Worse for the world, a day is coming when the lampstand will go out. I don't mean out permanently. I mean out of this world. The lampstand completely, lock, stock, and barrel, the church and the spirit will be removed from this world as the Bible attests. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse seven says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Is it not, brothers and sisters? Do we not see them? It's not even a mystery anymore. Lawlessness that is at work among us? And Paul says, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Day's coming when the lampstand in the world's gonna be removed. The church is gonna be called out, raptured, caught up to be with God, and the Spirit, so intimately united with the church, goes with the church, or we might even say, takes the church. But the Spirit of God in this world that right now is restraining, even the lawlessness that we see, there's still restraint in the church and by the Spirit of God, and this will be removed, Paul says. When the church goes up, the Spirit will depart as well, and the lights go out on this planet, 
Now, buckle up as we quickly consider (laughs) the 45 by 15 foot inner court of the tabernacle. First, 30 feet by 15, it's 15 feet wide, This the inner tent, if you will. There will be an inner tent covered over that is the holy place and the holy of holies. The first 30 feet are the holy place by 15 feet wide. And then the room of the holy of holies will be 15 by 15. So 45 feet in length, 15 feet in width, and then all the way around it is gonna be the courtyard, the outer courtyard. We'll get there in just a second, but watch this, this inner court of the tabernacle. Chapter 26, verse one. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim. Why? Because there are angels in the throne room, gang. With cherubim, the work of a skillful craftsman or workman. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, 42 feet. And the width of each curtain, four cubits, six feet. And all the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. Five plus five is what? 10, speaking of what? the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God's order, God's law, God's standard for Israel. And then he says, you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set, and likewise you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. Then you shall make 50 loops in the one curtain, and you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is on the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other. You shall make 50 clasps of gold and join the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle will be a unit. Now listen, I'm not concerned with you getting a picture of this right now. In fact, you can Google this easily. Google the tabernacle, and you can see mock-ups of it and and pictures to get a better visual. That's not the, the issue before us right now. It is again what the tabernacle means and what it represents for us. And I want you to know with these curtains that would be sewn together and woven, the skilled work of a craftsman, they're four different colored fabrics interwoven with cherubim woven in. And again, we won't even be told what cherubim look like till Ezekiel. And then it's stunning. But this heavenly scene needs cherubim because they're always there, perpetually worshiping the Lord. Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So these angelical beings will be woven in. Now, now someone might say, hey, wait a minute, though. Didn't God say you shall make no graven images? Well, these aren't graven, they're stitched. (laughs) They're woven. Yeah, what about the top of the ark? Okay, what God was saying in the Ten Commandments is no images to replace me. Now, I'm not kicking the door wide open to all kinds of other images, but God commanded these, these cherubim images to be woven in and to be on the mercy seat so God can make whatever commands he wants. And so they're woven in this picture of ongoing worship all throughout the curtains of the tabernacle. Four kinds of fabric, linen. Linen, which is white, white linen, which indicates for us, biblically, righteousness. 
righteousness. Revelation 19, 8, it was given to her, that is the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. A righteousness that is given to us as followers of Jesus Christ in service of Jesus. So linen is a picture here of righteousness in the weaving of the tabernacle tent. Blue. Now blue we gotta kinda guess at, but it's the color of the sky. Remember the blue sapphire, the sea of glass we talked about on Sunday. It's a a color of, of purity and it may actually represent the heavenly. So you have righteousness in the white linen. You have the blue, heavenly blue, purple. Purple is easy, the color of royalty the color of authority, and then scarlet. Scarlet is the color of blood and sacrifice. And by the, words, by the way, scarlet here is the word tola, which is from the tola worm, which was a worm, a scarlet worm that when, when smashed yields a red dye that would be used in fabrics. It's a fascinating uh, picture in and of itself. But white linen righteousness, blue, the color of heaven, purple, the color of royalty, scarlet, the color of blood and of sacrifice. The red scarlet blood that ultimately would flow on the cross, but right now it's woven into the tabernacle. Why? Because it's a picture of Jesus. Now, I'm not gonna speculate further on the colors. I have before in the past, and and you can, but gotta be careful in making too much speculation that's not grounded in Scripture. But the point here is, even in this beautiful design, we see Jesus and the worship of Jesus, his righteousness, his heavenly, royal, sacrificial work that's even woven woven into the curtains of the tabernacle. And verse seven says, then you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains in all. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, that's 45 feet, and the width of each curtain, four cubits, six feet. The 11 curtains shall have the same measurements. You shall join five curtains by themselves and the other six curtains by themselves, and you shall have double, or you shall double over the sixth curtain at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost on the first set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost on the second set. Of course, I know you can all see this very visually right now. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze. You shall put the clasps into the loops and join the tent together so that it will be a unit. The overlapping part that is left over in the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that is left over shall lap over the back of the tabernacle, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other of what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent shall lap over the sides of the tabernacle on one side and on the other to cover it. Now again, you can see pictures of this if you wanna Google it. But the point is here, God already has described the beautiful woven fabric of the inner court itself, of the holy place and the holy of holies, that tent completely covered in this beautiful fabric woven and designed, and now he's gonna cover the whole thing with a black, thick goat's hair. He won't even be able to see it. And then on top of that, he says, you shall make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red. So then that's the next layer on top of that, the black goat's hair, and then the ram skins dyed red. And then on top of that, a covering of porpoise skins above. What's going on here? You made this beautiful tent for the tabernacle and you covered up with goat's hair and 
ram's skin dyed red and then porpoise skins? What's the deal? Now think about this. The, the tabernacle had laid over it, over that inner court, a complete covering. Again, the goat's hair, which would first layer, tough, hairy, black goats in the Middle East, mostly black and brown, not a whole lot of white, you know, even with the sheep, but that thick, tough, black goat's hair, and then ram skins over that dyed red, so you've got this big, thick, red dyed covering, and then over the top of that, the third covering would be what, well, what my Bible says, porpoise. Some translations say dolphin, some say badger, because they really weren't sure, but the word in the Hebrew actually indicates, <laughs> you're gonna love this, sea cows. <laughs> sea cows, you should look that up. They're called dugongs. And you can find dugongs to this day in the Persian Gulf, in the Red Sea. This is where dugongs reside, and they are sea cows. They've got this big honking snout, and these things consume vast quantities of seagrass from the seafloor. I mean, they can eat 70, 80 pounds in a meal, just sucking it down. And they're fascinating-looking creatures, but they have this, this thick, leathery skin, and that's probably what's being talked about here when it says porpoise, or dolphin, we're probably talking about these sea cows, which were plenteous in number back then, and they're still plenteous in number today in that Persian Gulf. So you've got this goat's hair first, and then the ram skins over that, and then the leathery hide of the sea cow skins. Why? Why cover up the beautiful work, the tapestry and, and woven artistry? Well, it did a couple of things. Number one, this covering shielded the tabernacle from the heat of the sun and the weather. They're going into the wilderness. And the beauty of the tabernacle was not going to be despoiled. It's not gonna you know, fade in the sun or get beaten by the rain. So these three thick coverings go over the top of it to protect it. Problem is, it would also shut out all light from inside. You, you put these three skins, thick, heavy skins over the top, it will be completely dark on the inside. And so the holy place had the menorah, the seven-candled lampstand on that menorah of pure gold. Across from it, it's gonna be the table of showbread, also pure gold, reflecting the light of the menorah. So in the holy place, perfect light, plenty of light to see what's going on and to do the work that the priest would have to do. What about in the holy of holies? Wouldn't it be pitch dark? The Shekinah glory of God would illuminate the entirety of the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant would sit. But the second thing these coverings would do, not only would they protect, but they would also hide. That is, they would hide the beauty of the woven fabrics from outside view because this was a holy place. This was a place unto the Lord. This was like a home away from home for the presence of God to dwell among his people. This is not for the people to gawk at and gaze at and go, hey, check it out, because you know what the people would do? They would start to worship the tabernacle. They'd look at the weaving and they'd find their religious fervor in what they saw visually. God says, I don't want them to see that. That's for me, the priest who comes in once a year and Moses when he comes in, because we're gonna hopefully have a high degree of integrity among these guys. But this holy place, God said, I want it covered. And completely. Verse 15, you shall make the boards 
for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. Now we're gonna get into the skeletal support of the tabernacle. 10 cubits shall be the length of each board and one and a half cubits the width of each board. So each board's gonna be 15 feet by two feet. There shall be two tenons for each board fitted to one another. Thus you shall do for the boards of the tabernacle. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver. Silver is, remember, the metal of redemption, the color of redemption in the Bible. And you're gonna make 40 sockets of silver and under the 20 boards, two sockets under one board for its two tenons and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. And for the south, second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 boards. And there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under one board, two sockets under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle to the west, you shall make six boards. Now note that the rear of the tabernacle is to the west, which means you enter from the east. And it's the same with the temple. When it would eventually be constructed, the entrance to the temple is from the east because Messiah is gonna come from the way of the east. He says, you shall make six boards. Verse 23, you shall make two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They shall be double beneath and together they shall complete to its top to the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners and there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under one board, two sockets under another board. Then you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of the one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle. And the five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the rear side to the west. The middle bar in the center of the boards shall pass through from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars. You shall overlay the bars with gold. And then you shall erect, erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown on the mountain. Not a passage or a section of scripture you often read in devotional times. It's just black and white blueprints of construction. But these boards are the skeletal support. So what he describes here is what all of the curtains would hang from and be connected by and would hold up the tabernacle with bars for hanging the woven walls. Again, these boards are acacia wood overlaid with gold. Remember the incarnate Christ, both man and God. We see the wood and we see the gold together. And in this chapter, over a hundred, or actually exactly a hundred sockets of silver, that color of redemption. Because Christ brings the redemption. But again, you ask the question, or I ask the question, why all this work if no one could see it? You could see it on the inside. See, on the inside of the tabernacle with the light of the menorah, you could see the beauty of not only the curtains, but the gold boards in between would shine through. This would be a, a glorious, remarkable scene inside. And again, remember this, it's patterned after the heavenly throne room, which itself can only be approached by sacrifice. So read on, pioneers. Verse 31, you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, same four colors we've already seen. It shall be made with cherubim, as we've already seen. The work of a skillful workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, their hooks also being of gold on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. 
And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. The veil, the veil in the tabernacle would be, as described here, 15 feet square. And that would divide the holy place from the holy of holies. By the way, the veil in the temple was 60 by 30. 60 feet high by 30 feet wide. It was massive. And you remember what happened to that massive veil later on in the temple. Matthew 27, 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. As if to say, and this is what I believed happened, how do you tear from top to bottom? Someone's gotta be tearing from the top. And so God himself grabbed hold of that veil and ripped it in two at the death of Jesus, signaling open house to those who would come in faith. You can now enter in, come right into the holy of holies. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The earth shook and the, and the rocks were split. And from that point forward, God said, I want you to come to me. How do we come to the Father when there was all this holiness before and you couldn't just walk into the Holy of Holies? Why now? Because we come to the Father through the Son. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, which says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, and the Hebrew pastor says wisely, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is the veil. So right there, the Hebrew pastor gives us that commentary. We look back and understand the veil was designed and crafted and hung up as a picture, ultimately, of Jesus Christ himself, whose flesh was torn that we might enter in to the holy of holies in the presence of God. Remarkable that Jesus is, as he said of himself, he is the door. We'll continue on. Verse 26 of Exodus, or verse 34 of Exodus 26. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south and you shall put the table on the north side. I'm gonna lay that all out for you next week, okay? Well, so you'll see exactly where each one of these furnishings are. But we know right now that the lampstand, the golden lampstand and the golden table of showbread they were together there in the holy place. And in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant with the caporet, the mercy seat, the atoning cover on top of it. You shall, verse 36, make a screen for the doorway of the tent. So this is now the outer screen for going into the holy place of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold, their hooks also being of gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Now, do you see what we've been doing? Do you recognize what, what's just happened in the blueprints as God has laid them out? God began in the heart of the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant and the caporet, that covering in the innermost holy of holies. From there, 
he moved into the holy place to discuss the lampstand, the table of showbread. And then he began to talk about the design of the entirety of that inner courtyard that would hold all of these items. Now, at the end of chapter 26, he's moving out past the screen, the screen door, if you will, to the outer courtyard. And note this, two things. Number one, there's only one door. There's only one way in to the holy place and the holy of holies, only one door. There are not multiple entrances in and out to find God, just one way in. As Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, the only door. John chapter 10, verse seven. John chapter 10, verse nine. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But you go in and out through the one door through Jesus Christ, not through Muhammad, not through Buddha, not through Vishnu, not through any other uh, uh, of all countless pagan ideas that man has come up with. No, you only enter through Jesus Christ. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father. No one literally comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. So we started on the inside, at the heart, with the ark, and we're making our way out. In these blueprints, it's an interesting way of describing it. We would start on the inside and work our way in, or the outside in. We start with the construction, we lay the foundation, we build on it like that. God starts in the middle, in the central part with the heart of the tabernacle and comes out now. And exiting that inner tabernacle, we come to the next thing in chapter 27, hang with me just a bit longer, the bronze altar. We come to the bronze altar, which by the way, note that the screen on the outside of the tabernacle, all of a sudden now, The sockets are not silver, which speaks of redemption. They're bronze, which speaks of judgment. And as we come out of that inner place into the outer courtyard, we see the bronze altar because bronze portrays judgment in the Bible. Chapter 27, verse one, and you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, that's seven and a half feet, and five cubits wide, Seven and a half feet again. So seven and a half by seven and a half, the altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits, four and a half feet high. You shall make its horns on its four corners and its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with, not gold, bronze because the altar speaks of judgment. You shall make it for a grating of a network of bronze and on the net you shall make four bronze rings and its corners and you shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar so that the net will reach halfway up the altar and you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze and its poles shall be inserted into the ring so the poles shall be on the two sides of the altars when it is carried and you shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. So Moses has already seen this. God showed it to him. And he's now describing, the Lord is describing to Moses and having him write it down for the craftsmen, again, writing out the blueprints, the altar, the bronze altar. The word for altar in the Hebrew is mizbekah, and it literally translates the place of slaughter. The altar would be the place of slaughter. It's the first and it's the largest fixture as you now, if we were to go outside the tabernacle complex completely and enter in through the outer opening, we would come into the outer courtyard and the bronze altar would be the first thing we see. 
First thing you come to as you enter in to this, to this place that would then lead into the holy place and the holy of holies. Israel knew this. You could not approach God without going to the altar first. You have to go to the altar. You can't get past it. And again, it's made of common acacia wood, just like the cross. By the way, the cross was very likely made of acacia wood because it was so common in the first century in Israel. And it was overlaid with bronze. Hey, that's what happened. Jesus, on the cross, took the judgment on himself, the altar of Calvary, the place of the slaughter of Christ. John chapter five, verse 22. Now, Jesus says, not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son, which is why in Revelation 1.15, his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice like the sound of many waters. It's why Jesus said to the church of Thyatira, Revelation chapter two, verse 18, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like burnished bronze. And to the Jew, they would go straight to the bronze altar and recognize his feet had the right of judgment. Now, there will be two more pieces of furniture that we're not gonna see tonight. And I'll explain why perhaps next week if we get there, but we're in the outer courtyard. Now we've come out of the holy place and in that outer courtyard, we see the construction of the bronze altar. Verse nine continuing says, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. That's the outer court. On the south side, hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. So that's gonna be 150 feet will be the length of the tabernacle, the outer court. And its pillars shall be 20 with their 20 sockets of bronze and their hooks of the pillar and their bands shall be of silver. So you've got bronze of judgment, but there's still that silver portraying redemption there. Likewise, for the north side and the length, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long, 20 pillars with their 20 sockets of bronze and hooks of pillars and their bands shall be of silver. For the width of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets, so we're 150 feet in length, we're now 75 feet in width of that outer courtyard, 150 by 75. The hangings for one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with three pillars and three sockets. And again, you can look this up to see what it looks like. For the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and three sockets. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen of 20 cubits, blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver with the four pillars and their four sockets. So that screen's gonna be the entry gate for the court. And it's beautiful. And it is made of that same material that the inner tabernacle would be made of. And that's the way in to the tabernacle. Verse 17, all the pillars around the court shall be furnished with silver bands, and their hooks of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits and the width 50 throughout. So again, 150 by 75. And the height, five cubits of fine twisted linen in their sockets of bronze. So the walls here, the courtyard is seven and a half feet high all the way around. So no one could just look in to see what was going on. All the utensils of the tabernacle used in its service and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. And we're talking about everything that's used for the altar of sacrifice would be bronze, that picture, that color of judgment. You shall charge the sons of Israel that they bring you clear oil 
of beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. (laughs) We're about to stop. But listen, here at the end, I said a few minutes ago, the lampstand, the menorah, it's gonna go out of this world, but my friends, it will never go out. The idea here, bring in pure olive oil to pour into the, the seven cups on that pure gold lampstand and part of the priest's role was to keep it burning continually, perpetually, always, ongoing, nonstop. And note this, that after the kingdom age, the lampstand, the spirit of God in the church functioning together, the light of the world, Jesus Christ himself, does not go out all the way into the millennial kingdom age and then into the glorious eternal new Jerusalem. The Bible says, Revelation 22, verse three, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord has illuminated it and its lamp is the lamb. New Jerusalem. Do you realize that the inner court of the tabernacle is in some ways a type, not only the throne room of heaven, but of new Jerusalem because you've got the Shekinah glory of God in the Holy of Holies and you have the lampstand in the holy place and both will be the light of new Jerusalem. Verse 21, and we will stop. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it in order from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout their generations for the sons of Israel. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, the pastor puts it together for us. And he says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. What are his feet? Burnished bronze. His enemies would be a footstool because his feet would now sit upon them in judgment. For by one offering he has perfected for all time, that is continually, those who are sanctified. Final thoughts. We're in the tabernacle. We've seen so much tonight and these blueprints can be overwhelming, but just know again, they are blueprints of the heavenly throne, but they were sent down for a mobile temple. That is, the tent of a nomad. Can you think about what that means? God as a nomad? That sounds disrespectful, if not downright impertinent. God, the nomadic God. And yet, note this. Jesus was nomadic. Jesus lived his life, the itinerant rabbi without a home. He lived out under the stars. He would stay in the homes of his friends as he moved about from place to place. He did not have a home. Jesus said in Matthew 8, 20, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The tabernacle is a nomadic 
tent, nomadic blueprints. Jesus was a nomad and was a traveler, a sojourner in this world. My friends, we are called as his people to be nomadic. As Jesus himself is nomadic, we're sojourners, we're foreigners, we're temporary dwellers in this world. This life is not the thing. You are not here for this life. You are here to find Jesus or be found by him and for eternal life. That's the whole reason we're here. And once you've come into a relationship with Jesus, it's preparation for the kingdom age that is to come and eternity after that with him. That's our purpose for being. So here, we're nomads. We're travelers. We're sojourners. As Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay, literally during the time of your sojourn here on earth. Is life tough for you? 2020, not the year you thought it would be? So what? We're sojourners. So the smoke clouds roll in, we're sojourners. So the fires come, we're sojourners. The hurricanes hit, we're sojourners. The tragedies strike, we're sojourners. We are not for this world. Jesus was nomadic. We are called as his people to have that same attitude, to be nomadic. And in this world, final thought, the Holy Spirit is a nomad. John chapter three, verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And so don't be discouraged. In this nomadic life, we have a God who knows how to lead a people through a wilderness and finally up and into his holy presence. Father, I come to you tonight and I just ask through all of these blueprints that we don't get lost in the details, but we are found in the realization of Jesus Christ. As you declared, Father, your deity in his humanity, as you clear, declared your Holy Spirit, as you opened up picture after picture for us tonight in these drafts of the tabernacle. Father, may we find amazing comfort in the fact that this tent was made to move, that this temple was not meant to get embedded and stuck and settled in one place in the world. But the picture is beautiful, Lord, that it, it's a temple that's moving. Just as right now you have made us temples of the Holy Spirit, we are nomadic temples. We are moving tabernacles. And so, Father, would you keep us on the move? Keep our feet light, Lord. Keep us focused on the journey to the journey's end because, Lord, we know the promised land's coming. The kingdom is coming. Oh, Holy Father, bless your people tonight and encourage us to keep sojourning. In Jesus' name, amen.